Welcome back to Longmont Nazarene Church online. We've had a taste of summer this week. I know for some of you that's probably been welcome. For others who are not ready for the heat of summer yet, you would probably hope that things would wait a while longer. We've. Uh, it looks to me like we have things moving in the right direction. I'm hoping we do as far as our ability to gather together on Sunday for worship once again. Of course, we always wait to hear word from those in authority over us at the state and the county, but we are hoping and praying that there will be a day soon when we can come to the sanctuary and worship together as the body of Christ is the Longmont Church of the Nazarene. Just to let you know, we're continuing today in our study of the life and ministry of Elijah. And our text today will be 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 40, if you want to locate that passage in your Bibles, and we'll be reading that together in a few moments. But I want to begin with a word of prayer today. Thank you, Father, for the beautiful weather we've enjoyed this week. Julie and I, as we've traveled down some of the streets of the city, have admired your handiwork, especially in some of the flowers that are blooming and those clear days when the mountain peaks are so obvious and you can still see the snow caps. What an incredible world you have created for us to enjoy. Thank you for the truth of your word. It's amazing, Father, that as long ago as this was written, it still applies so relevantly to the human condition today and the things we face and struggle with. It tells us how we can live to please you. It gives us the path to salvation through Jesus Christ. There is hope. There is encouragement. There is teaching. There's admonition, all of that and more in your word, and we thank you for it. I want to thank you again for lives that you're touching, bodies that you're healing, people that you're encouraging, folks who have resources supplied who need them. And Father, we're praying that you will continue to work in our great land to bring the coronavirus epidemic to an end. Lord, we want to see people back to work, businesses open of every variety. We want people to be able to leave their homes once again. We want to be able to come together and worship as the body of Christ once again. And we pray, Father, that you would hasten that process so that all those things can begin to take place. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives, for the mercy and grace that you show us each day. Most of all, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that has never lost its power and never will, and for the work of your Holy Spirit among us. We give you thanks and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, after three years in the village of Zarephath, Elijah is commanded by God to return to Israel and present himself to King Ahab. 
On his way, he encounters Obadiah, a high-ranking official in Ahab's service, who because of the drought has been sent to search the country for pasture in order to feed the king's horses and mules. Elijah tells Obadiah to inform the king that he has returned. But Obadiah hesitates to do that for fear that Elijah may disappear again as he did three years ago. He is assured by Elijah that he will indeed present himself to the king today. And with that, Obadiah carries the message to King Ahab. Which brings us to our text today, again found in 1 Kings chapter 18. And we'll be reading a rather lengthy passage this time. It's verses 17 through 40. Now Ahab has has come out to meet Elijah at this point. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, But do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. 
He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Notice the first words out of Ahab's mouth when he sees Elijah. He says, is that you, troubler of Israel? In other words, Elijah, this drought and famine are all your fault. Those words reflect an attitude that's all too prevalent in the world we live in. The bad things that are happening to me, the difficult situations I find myself in, they have to be somebody's fault. And that somebody is anybody but me. There's a refusal to accept responsibility for the bad choices or sinful actions that have resulted in the trouble that we might be experiencing. So, we point our finger at someone else and say, well, it must be their fault. That's exactly what King Ahab was doing here. And Elijah refuses to accept responsibility for the drought and the famine and the suffer that, suffering that is, is caused all Israel. In fact, he lays it right back at the king's feet. He said, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. There it is. The blame for Israel's present devastation lies squarely at the feet of Ahab and his father before him. In fact, I remind you of passages in 1 Kings chapter 16 that tell us, But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an astropole 
and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Scripture reminds us that we are responsible to God for the sinful choices that we make. As much as we might like to deflect blame, and as long as humanity has been inclined to do so, we must bear personal responsibility. It goes back as far as Adam and Eve in the garden. We read in Genesis chapter 3, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. In other words, it was my wife's fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In other words, the devil made me do it. And we've had a tendency to do that ever since. Here's what the scripture says about excuses and blame laying. Romans 14, 12. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Whether we are honest with God and ourselves now or not, there will be a day when who's to blame, no matter what excuses we've made, will be painfully clear. But there's hope. We find that hope expressed in the words of a song entitled, The Gospel Song. And it says this, Holy God in love he came, perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. Jesus went to the cross and took the blame for our sin on himself. In fact, the scripture tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We need to take responsibility for our sinful choices. Confess those to Jesus. And when we do, the promise is that we will be forgiven. We are then blameless because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Well, Ahab knows what Elijah has said to him is the truth. Note that he makes no attempt to defend himself. The fault for all the famine and terrible suffering lay with him and not with Elijah. The king is to blame. 
But Elijah was not content just to charge Ahab with the troubles that now overwhelmed Israel. He wanted a face-to-face confrontation with all the false prophets of the heathen gods who had victimized his people. So he challenges Ahab to summon all the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal and Asherah to the top of Mount Carmel. Interesting that Elijah chose Mount Carmel as the place for this confrontation. Mount Carmel overlooked the Mediterranean and was the most fruitful spot in all of the country. Close to the sea, its climate tempered by the mist of the sea breezes, it it enjoyed beautiful, mild weather. Even during drought, it would not have been affected as severely as the less fortunate parts of the country had been. On Carmel, the soil was unusually rich and productive. Here, all sorts of crops grew to perfection in the favorable climate. If Baal's claim to be the god of fruitfulness could be proved anywhere, it was on the crest of Mount Carmel. If the prophets of Baal and Asherah wanted to prove to the people that their gods controlled the weather and crop production, what better place to do it? Here, everything would be in their favor. So it's no real surprise that Ahab consented to summon all the prophets of his false gods to the spot where he was confident that they could call down rain. These same facts did not elude Elijah. He would be in a place of greatest disadvantage to proving his point. Yet, because of his enormous faith in God, Mount Carmel would be the place. So, in response to Ahab's edict, people gathered from all over the country and came to Mount Carmel. Elijah wastes no time. He gets right to the point. He throws down the gauntlet. It's crunch time. We need to settle this matter once for all. And the first words out of his mouth, once the people had gathered, were this. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And their response? Utter silence. Nothing. You know, life is full of choices. Some are insignificant. Other choices have the potential of affecting the course and direction of the rest of our life. Elijah seeks to solicit a significant choice from the people of Israel. The people had readily embraced the shallow, sensual gratification of Baalism over the internal spiritual obedience to God, which held promise for both temporal and eternal blessing. For generations, Israel had been trying to worship Jehovah and Baal at the same time. They wanted it both ways. They wanted the power of Jehovah, but enjoyed the decadence of Baal. Elijah sustained a compelling drive and passion to eliminate the destructive evil that that Baal had on the people of God. So he's calling them on this day to make a choice. He's telling them they cannot worship both. 
God will not allow it. God will not share loyalty with anyone. We must serve one or the other. We cannot have it both ways. Hundreds of years earlier, Moses called the people to decide. He said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Later, Joshua presented the people with this challenge. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the question is still relevant today. Throughout the ages, every generation, every nation, and every person must make the the decision of what God they will serve. Elijah was saying to the crowd on Carmel and to us today, get off the fence regarding who you will serve. How long will you try to stand on middle ground? If God is is in charge, obey him. If this Satan-influenced world is more desirable, then follow his ways. God unequivocally declares that we must choose one or the other. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. It's one or the other. There's no such thing as neutrality. To choose a neutral position is to choose against God. Then in verse 22 of our text, it says, Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. We know from Elijah's earlier encounter with Obadiah that there were still prophets in the land. However, they were all in hiding, whereas Elijah was boldly, And publicly confronting the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. He may have felt alone. After all, it was 850 to 1. But Elijah's confidence in the power of God gave him courage to stand strong in the face of those odds. Perhaps he thought, of the words of King David in Psalm 18:29 where he said in your strength I can crush an army with my God I can scale a wall or as the apostle Paul states in Romans 8:31 if God is for us who can ever be against us so Elijah now lays out the conditions of the contest he says Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let that cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. That's a key. 
I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of the Lord your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Kind of interesting that they choose to speak up now. And, you know, maybe what they thought was that this sounded like kind of an interesting proposal. You know, a, a dramatic performance, pitting one side against the other, might be kind of entertaining. Let both sides uh, do their thing. Enjoy the show. Judge the best performance. Little did they know that they would witness the power of God that day. So, Elijah gives the false prophets first try. In fact, he gives them the greater part of the day to get the job done. What happened next is described in Bible history of the Old Testament. And it puts it this way. Now commenced a scene that baffles description. Ancient writers have left us accounts of the great Baal festivals and they closely agree with the narrative of the Bible, this one that we are referring to today. Only they furnish further details. First rose a comparatively moderate, though already wild, cry to Baal, followed by a dance around the altar, beginning with a swinging motion to and fro. The howl then became louder and louder and the dance more frantic. They whirled round and round, ran wildly through each other's ranks, always keeping up a circular motion. The head bent low so that their long, disheveled hair swept the ground. Ordinarily, the madness now became infectious, and the onlookers joined in the frenzied dance. But Elijah knew how to prevent this. It was noon, and for hours they had kept up their wild cries. With, With cutting taunts and bitter irony, Elijah now reminded them that, since Baal was Elohim, the fault, it, the, the fault it must lie with them. He might be otherwise engaged, and they must cry louder. Stung to madness, they became more frantic than before. And what we know is the second and third acts in these feasts ensued. The wild howl passed into piercing, de- demonical yells. In their madness... The priests bit their arms and cut themselves with the two-edged swords which they carried and with lances. As blood began to flow, the frenzy reached its highest pitch. When first one, then others, commenced to prophesy, moaned and groaned, then burst into rhapsodic cries, accusing themselves or speaking to Baal or uttering incoherent, broken sentences. All the while, they beat themselves with heavy scourges, loaded with loaded or armed with sharp points and cut themselves with swords and lances, sometimes even mutilated themselves, since the blood of the priests was supposed, supposed to be especially propitiatory with Baal. Well, that's the scene that they were witnessing that day. And after this had gone on for some time, Of course, as it said, Elijah began to taunt them. Perhaps their God was otherwise engaged, attending to important business, traveling. Maybe he was asleep. 
And this scene of frantic activity went on until evening with no response from the storm god. The false prophets had been given their time. Now it's Elijah's turn. And as the sun begins to lower in the sky and the time of the evening sacrifice approached, Elijah called for the crowd to come near. Once they had gathered, he began repairing the altar. He used 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel. When the altar was done, he dug a trench around it. He gathered wood to lay on the altar, and then he butchered the bull for the sacrifice. He then called for four large water jars to be filled and poured over the sacrifice. And he had them do this three times. You know, I think it's significant that Elijah made the contest as easy as possible for the prophets of Baal and as seemingly difficult as possible for his God. Now that everything is ready, he offers a simple prayer to God. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Today let it be known that you are God in Israel. His prayer focused on the character and reputation of God. And that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. His prayer touched on the authenticity of himself as messenger. He then makes his request. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. And then he finished his prayer with a longing for revival and that you are turning their hearts back again. And God answered in a big way. Fire from heaven falls and burns up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones of the altar, the soil, and the water in the trench. And upon witnessing, the people fell with their faces to the ground and declared, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They were convinced. They experienced a change of mind and heart. And now at Elijah's command, they took all the prophets of Baal and put them to death. See, the scourge had to be cleansed from the land. Why? Well, if you let them live, they'll rise up to cause problems again. This Old Testament story gives a physical picture of what we must do in a spiritual sense in our own lives. The people were told to seize the prophets. And you know, that that in our own lives can be anything. We give our time, energy, resources, and devotion to. See, the prophets represented a false god. We have lots of false gods in our world. Our our world has been plagued with an overabundance of false and futile gods. Multitudes of men and women have followed and fallen for the falsehood of false gods and their false prophets. Again, it can be anything. We give our time, energy, resources, and devotion to. It doesn't have to be something as disgusting as Baal worship. It could be our favorite recreation. It could be the 
sports team that we're fans of and love to watch on Sunday morning. It can be something we own that requires our time and energy. And as as this story illustrates, we must do our part to do away with the duplicity, deception, and false allegiances in our lives. For God to be Lord in us, some things may need to die. We must be done with anything that comes before or takes the place of God in our lives. If we don't, they'll rise up to cause problems again. We must come to God in true repentance. The Apostle Peter tells us, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And my question is, is Jesus Lord of your life? Pray with me. Father, what an amazing story. When I think about those events in the Bible that I would love to have been there to witness, this is one of them. It had to be absolutely and utterly amazing to witness what went on that day. The futility of the prophets of Baal. There was no God to answer them. All that they went through that day and no answer. And then, just a short, simple prayer. And Lord God, fire fell from heaven And you not only consumed the sacrifice, but everything that sacrifice was laid upon and the water that had been poured over it. You left no doubt in people's minds who witnessed that that day that you were God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so to keep this evil from rising up again, from causing more problems, the prophets of Baal were put to death. And sometimes we have to make a choice in our lives to put some things to death. We have to let go. Because if we don't, they'll rise up to cause problems. Lord God, you want to be God and God alone in our lives. You want to be Lord of all. You want no challengers. You want no one else on the throne with you. You want to be Lord of our lives. You are a jealous God. You accept no rivals. And so as we've looked at this incident today, I pray, Father, that we would examine our hearts and we would ask ourselves, is there anything, Heavenly Father, that challenge you for the lordship of my life? And if there is, then I choose today to put that thing to death. I want you to be Lord of my life. Father, we thank you that that is the best place for us to live with you as Lord, as kingship over us. And I pray that as we make a decision to do that, and as we put aside, put to death those things that might challenge you in any way, 
We'll live in a freedom and in a power that we have not known before. Because it pays to serve you. Thank you again for the truth of your word today and how it applies to our lives. May you continue to speak to us through your Holy Spirit about what we've heard you say today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us again. May God bless you this week.